Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com Vance First Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, Kevin Smith, podcaster here at the Fans First Sports Network and podcaster and contributor to the Steel Curtain Network, head football coach, uh, the Ocean City High School Red Raiders in Ocean City, New Jersey. And thrilled to have an opportunity here to, to talk football with all of you. It is now mid to, well, getting to be late July almost. And that means training camps are about a week away. At this time next week, most NFL teams will be headed to training camp. And we're going to have an awful lot to talk about when that occurs. But today we're going to do the flip side of last week's conversation. So last week in part one of the show, what we kind of call our whip around segment, we previewed the NFC. We looked at uh, the NFC and whether or not there are any true contenders in, in the conference to the 49ers or the Philadelphia Eagles, who appear to be the clear favorites in the NFC. And can anybody challenge them? We previewed that in part one last week and then in part two last week in what we call the call sheet segment where we get into the coaching element and the strategic element and the X and O's of the game. We looked at what techniques or tactics or strategies or schemes are modern NFL offenses using to stress modern defenses. And the thing we really zeroed in on were the horizontal stretch schemes that have become very popular in the NFL and how by making defenses defend the entire width of the field, offenses have found some advantages. And so today we're going to do the flip side of both of those conversations. Today we're going to preview the AFC. And then in part two of the show, we're going to look at what defenses are now doing to stress modern offenses. So how are defenses doing to offenses in many ways what what offenses are doing with their horizontal stretch scheme. What's the equivalent of that for defense? All right, man, can't wait to talk about this stuff. So let's jump in. Let's jump in with a preview of the AFC, which if you talk to most people, the AFC is clearly right now the superior conference. And there's probably one distinct reason for that, and that is quarterback play. The AFC is absolutely loaded with quarterbacks. And as a result, it makes it a deeper conference. In the NFC, it appears, and you never know, right? And uh, and all, all due respect to the, the Cowboys and the Vikings and some of the other better teams in the NFC, but it appears like it's a two-horse race between Philly and San Francisco. But in the AFC, it's a lot harder to, to say who the favorite is. You, you, you obviously have the Chiefs at the top, the defending Super Bowl champs, who remain probably the best all-around team in the league. But the Bengals and the Bills are close at their heels, and then behind those two teams, you have five or six other teams who are legitimate, not just playoff contenders, but teams that, that if they get hot could make a pretty serious run. And the thing that drives those teams is their superior quarterback play. And I'm not trying to be, you know, like, you know, I don't want this to be a hyperbole alert, I'm not trying to say things just for the shock value, but 
if I did a deep dive on this subject, you might find that the the depth at the quarterback position this season in the AFC is unprecedented. I don't know if there's a time where you have a deeper group of quarterbacks. Let's just consider them for a moment. You have in that mix, you have some future Hall of Famers, Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes for sure. Maybe Russell Wilson. That's an interesting conversation. Is Russell Wilson a future Hall of Famer? I think that that's still in the T TBD to be determined column. But then you have current stars in their prime. Guys who, if they continue on this trajectory, will be in the Hall of Fame conversation. We're talking about Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, uh, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, maybe the last two a little further away. But still, guys who are clearly stars at the position. And then you've got young talents who are showing a lot of potential and on the rise. Trevor Lawrence is on the verge of stardom. His his playoff run last, last season was epic. You've got Tua Tagovailoa. you got Kenny Pickett. you got Mac Jones. That's probably sort of the order I would put them in in terms of their ascension right now in the league. you got a couple dependable veterans, Ryan Tannehill and Jimmy Garoppolo, both of whom have won a lot of games as a starting quarterback. And then you got some exciting rookies. you got C.J. Stroud and Anthony Richardson. It's a really deep and eclectic group, but it's also a group that because of the talent there, it makes the conference really hard to evaluate. Again, Chiefs, Bills, Bengals, probably your favorites there. But think about this. If you don't get the number one seed, if you don't get the number one seed in the conference and you've got to play three playoff games, and remember, there's only one bye week now, the way that they that the playoffs are structured with seven teams. you got to play three playoff games. You could ha- have to put, face some combination of Jackson, Lawrence, Herbert, Rodgers, Burrow, Allen, and Mahomes in the postseason just to get to the Super Bowl. And that is a daunting slate of quarterbacks. So, so who comes out on top then, right? Let's go division by division in the AFC. We'll preview them all quickly. And then I'll make some most likely terrible predictions at the end because I stink at predictions. All right, the East, the AFC East. It definitely remains Buffalo's division, right? They're a deep and balanced team. They're fast and physical on both sides of the ball. Uh, Allen struggled a little bit down the stretch last year, but he, he did have a UCL injury, an elbow injury that limited uh, you know his abilities there. So he should be fully recovered. They drafted a, a tight end, rookie tight end, Dalton Kincaid, who could be a perfect piece for Allen, one of those moved tight ends who can stretch the field. So anybody but the Bills winning the East would be surprising. But you, it'd be hard to argue that that the, the Dolphins and Jets have not closed the gap. Miami uh, appears to be the fastest team in the NFL, and they got even faster this offseason by signing cornerback Jalen Ramsey and then on offense – speedy running back Raheem Mostert. And then you have have Mike McDaniel's unconventional approach to things. It really gives Miami this intangible that makes them kind of mysterious and a bit of an unknown. You don't really know exactly what Mike McDaniel's going to do. But the key to all of it, right? They're fast. You know, they've got, God, they have skill makers or skill skill players and and playmakers everywhere. But Tagovailo is the key. When, When he's been healthy, he's been very good. But you look at his injury history, the concussions and various other injuries, and that brings his longevity into question. So really, the Dolphins season most likely hinges on how healthy Tua remains. 
And then we come to the Jets, who, as you may have heard, they signed a big-name quarterback this offseason, right? They acquired Aaron Rodgers, and that era is going to unfold fantastically on HBO's Hard Knocks. I don't know how people here, here listening, people listening, feel about Hard Knocks. It's a polarizing subject. I know some people love it. Some people just think that it's a, a made-for-TV drama, the real housewives of football, so to speak. I love it. I just love any inside look at the locker room. I like to I like to know how uh, how the hot dogs are made, so to speak. And uh, as a coach, I love to focus in on the meeting room stuff, the one on one stuff, the, the you know the clips that you get of a coach just talking to a player at practice on the side about whatever. What what, what are those interactions like? So it'll be really interesting to watch the Jets on Hard Knocks. But when when the real play starts, New York's really young and talented. They're fast. They got uh, speed and skill at the receiver position. Rogers has brought in some of his his Green Bay favorites. So you know if he has if he has a second act like Peyton Manning and Tom Brady did when they left their longtime teams, then the Jets are for real. So so in the East, you've got three teams who are all capable of winning the AFC. That fourth team that I've excluded from the conversation is the New England Patriots. And how weird is it? to exclude the New England Patriots from that conversation. But right now, they appear to be the weakest team in the division. You probably have to go back to the 1990s to be able to make that claim, where New England was the weakest team in the AFC East. And for me, the interesting thing, since we're talking quarterbacks here, will be how long of a leash will Bill Belichick provide Mac Jones? Now, he certainly struggled last year after a promising rookie season. And the interesting question will be, were Mac Jones' struggles a product of the really weird decision Bill Belichick made to hand over the play calling to Matt Patricia, a defensive coordinator who had never coordinated on the offensive side of the ball. And that one year experiment is done. Or, you know, will he have a comeback season in under, under Bill O'Brien's tutelage, who's surely going to put in a system. It looks like they're going to base out of a lot of 12 personnel with two tight ends. That'll be a lot more quarterback friendly. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in new England with Mac Jones and whether or not uh, the backup there, Bailey Zappi, I think I, I think I said that night, that, that name right, um, whether or not he gets a shot because he did some good things in some limited playing time as a rookie. All right, on to the AFC North. This division is loaded. All four teams could be playoff contenders. I don't think that that is a particularly controversial statement. I think that that's a legitimate statement. The Bengals are the defending champs. They look to be the best team again. They're stacked with talent on offense. Uh, Joe Burrow has not yet reached his peak. That should be kind of scary for the rest of the conference. So they're going to score points, no doubt about about that. The challenge for Cincinnati will be replacing safeties Jesse Bates and Von Bell. They were one of the best safety tandems in the league last year. Jesse Bates, I think, is a top three safety in the NFL. And both Bates and Bell left. And so the question will be, how much of a hit is that going to put on Cincinnati's defense? Because again, with all the quarterback firepower in the AFC, you're going to have to be able to defend the pass. So that'll be their challenge. The challenge in Baltimore, another team with an awful lot of talent, will be to seamlessly transition to the Todd Munkin offense. So, so the Ravens parted ways with Greg Roman. Uh, you know, Greg Roman ran a style that was really built around Lamar Jackson's athleticism, but the Ravens were ever never able to develop 
a, a consistent downfield passing game. And so they brought in Todd Munkin, who who has had some success as an NFL coordinator. He's coming off of a national title at Georgia, where he was just the offensive coordinator for the Bulldogs. He's got a different approach. He he likes to utilize vertical passing concepts. He'll use his backs more in, in the passing game. And he'll probably try to uh, protect Jackson by running him less on the read option schemes that Roman loved and making him a little bit more of a pocket passer. Whether or not Lamar Jackson can do that will be the interesting question. I think people forget he did it pretty well at Louisville. He was a pretty good in-the-pocket passer at Louisville, uh, but it remains to be seen whether or not he can now transcend that to the NFL. Pittsburgh finished 7-2 and two down the stretch last year. The Steelers won seven out of their last nine games after a terrible 2-6 and six start. And their play picked up as their rookie quarterback picked up. Kenny Pickett, the more experience he got, the better he got. And Pickett showed last year on offense that he could really be a clutch guy, that he had the clutch gene. Pickett led three game-winning fourth-quarter comebacks. And Pittsburgh's wins in Week 16 and 17 last year last year over the Raiders and Ravens were one when Pickett led game-winning drives that culminated in touchdowns in the final minute. So, so he had a flair for the dramatic. He had a clutch gene. And the playmakers on offense in Pittsburgh are all really, really young. They've added some good talent. They drafted 6'7", tight end Darnell Washington, who appears to be a matchup nightmare. Uh, they'll pair him with Pat Fryer with the tight end. They quietly brought in a really effective slot receiver, Allen Robinson, to, to provide some veteran presence in that receiver room. So the Steelers could be sneaky good on offense. And with a healthy T.J. Watt, their defense could return to being a top 10 unit. The big question in Pittsburgh is this. Can beleaguered offensive coordinator Matt Canada solve the red zone woes that limited the Steelers to just 18 points a game last year? Pittsburgh had a weird statistic last year where – they led the NFL over the last nine weeks in time of possession per drive. And in time of possession in general, they finished sixth in the NFL, but they finished just 26th in the NFL in points. So what's that mean? That means is the Steelers were holding the ball for a long time. They just weren't converting their opportunities. So they need to improve in that regard. And that brings us to Cleveland. Uh, their season hinges on how Deshaun Watson plays, plain and simple. I mean, he led the NFL in QBR in 2020, and he just hasn't been the same guy since. And Cleveland's got a tough early schedule. And if they stumble out of the gates and get off to a bad start, you could hear some some uh, rumblings in Cleveland about Deshaun Watson, especially considering the massive contract that he was afforded. Now, they got a week, they got a weak closing slate. So if they can weather the storm early – Cleveland could close, and they're a playoff contender as well. All right, moving to the AFC South. We're going we're gonna to do the South pretty quickly because I think it's a, it's a one-team conversation. The Jacksonville Jaguars appear to be uh, the best team in the division, and I don't think it's that close. Trevor Lawrence led a remarkable comeback from 27 points down in, in the wild-card playoff round last year to beat the Chargers. And that's the kind of game, much like the immaculate reception in Pittsburgh back in 1972, this sort of like miracle game that, that kind of turned the Steelers from this perennial loser into a dynasty. And I'm not saying the Jacksonville Jaguars are, are becoming a dynasty, but, but that playoff win last year could be a springboard to greater consistency as, as a franchise. And we'll see. Trevor, Trevor Lawrence 
is surrounded by speed. Calvin Ridley, Christian Kirk, Zay Flowers, Travis at the end. They've got speed everywhere. And so it looks like they're the class of the South. Now, the other teams in the division are, are interesting. So Indy might start with Gardner Minshew as quarterback as they wait for Anthony Richardson to develop. But when Richardson's ready, he and Jonathan Taylor in the backfield together, that's going to be pretty fascinating. Uh, in Tennessee, you know, the Titans, you, when, when you talk about the Titans, you're, you're generally – used to talking about them being great up front, strong on both lines. But they don't have it up front this year. They're going to be one of the weaker teams in the NFL as far as their offensive line goes. And that's going to make life tough on Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. Now, they just signed DeAndre Hopkins, which will certainly alleviate pressure uh, on Tannehill and will give them uh, you know, a, a top-notch receiver to, to pair with Traylon Burks, who was really promising as a rookie. But the Titans will probably – struggle to make the playoffs or make a playoff run simply because of their offensive line situation. And Houston is clearly rebuilding, right? Now they're rebuilding behind the number two and three picks in the draft in Stroud and Will Anderson. And those are two pretty good building blocks. But the big issue for Houston is just that the roster's not filled out yet. You know, so they're, they're, they only won three games last year. They win more than three this year. Houston wins five or six games this year. That's a pretty good progress for the Titans for the for the Texans so so look for the Texans probably to finish last but they should be better than last season all right let's get to the west the last division in the AFC that's clearly a division where the Chiefs are the class of the conference I mean Patrick Mahomes I think it's easy to forget he's still just 27 years old and he's already an NFL legend he's already a surefire Hall of Famer he's only 27 that's scary for the rest of the NFL now the Chiefs lost some valuable pieces, right? They lost on offense Orlando Brown and Nicole Hardman and Juju Smith-Schuster. They lost Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator, although he wasn't necessarily the play caller. Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes still make the Chiefs probably the favorite in the AFC. But I think the gap has closed simply because of some of the talent that Kansas City has lost, and it'll be interesting to see if they can maintain their productivity without those guys. The biggest push for them, against them, I should say, in the division is probably going to come from the Chargers. If, of course, they can get over that gut-wrenching loss to Jacksonville last postseason. I mean, Justin Herbert just gets better every year. And it feels like this year he's matched with an offense coordinator in Kellen Moore, who's going to help maximize his potential. Moore was a pretty good play caller in Dallas for a long time, comes to L.A. when he and Herbert should be a good match. So the big challenge for the Chargers is last year they ranked dead last in the NFL in rushing yards per attempt. Now they they signed former All-Pro linebacker Eric Kendricks, so that should help. But if they don't get better at stopping the run, it's not going to matter what Herbert and the offense do. Finally, we come to the Raiders, who are starting the post-Derek Carr era with Jimmy Garoppolo at quarterback. And Jimmy G, I think here's another thing it's easy to forget. Jimmy G. When he's been healthy, his starting record as a quarterback is 40 and 17. Now, granted, he's played for Belichick in New England and Shanahan in San Francisco. It doesn't get much better as a quarterback to play for, for those two. But now he goes to Las Vegas. Uh, he's going to play for Belichick disciple Josh McDaniels. The problem I, th- I see for the, for the Raiders is that they've got one of the worst defenses in the league. And it's going to be hard for them to keep up, keep pace with a lot of the offenses that they'll face, the quarterbacks that they'll face, because their opponents are going to score a lot of points. 
And that's going to be a struggle for Jimmy G to keep up. And if Jimmy G can't stay healthy, Brian Hoyer's the backup. So tough sledding for Vegas this year, simply because I just don't think that they're going to be able to stop teams to stay competitive. And now Denver, I almost forgot the Broncos. And the Broncos will be fascinating to watch. They'll be fascinating because the Sean Payton, Russell Wilson mix, the chemistry between those two is going to be really interesting. You know, I'm not, I will never claim that I know what goes on inside a locker room. So when you hear things like Russell Wilson's a diva, you kind of have to take those things at face value. Uh, But often you hear it reported again and again, and it feels like, well, maybe there's some legitimacy to that. And if not a diva, then maybe somebody who's, who's gotten used to getting things the way that they want them. And Sean Payton coming in, he's not that guy. He's a Bill Parcells disciple, right? And if you know anything about Bill Parcells, then you understand that he was in his own way. He was a player's coach, but he was tough and he was demanding and he didn't care about your ego. You know, you can check your ego at the door because he was going to do things his way. And that's how Sean, Payton's going to be. He's going to do things his way. And if Russell Wilson doesn't bend to Sean Payton, that could go that could go sideways in a hurry. And it would be very fascinating because usually when when it goes sideways between a coach and a player, the player wins, especially if that player is a franchise quarterback who the who the franchise is committing hundreds of millions of dollars to. But this head coach is Sean Payton. Maybe he's a little bit different. If it goes sideways in Denver, well, the Broncos double down on Russell Wilson and part ways with Sean Payton, or will they choose the coach over the quarterback who's now in his thirties and maybe they'll look to start over somewhere else. Very, very interesting stuff in Denver. Okay. So that's our, our conference preview. I'm going to hold off on predictions. I, I, I announced that I would make some predictions at the beginning. But that segment ran a little bit long on, on one hand. And on the second hand, I'm going to be totally honest. I'll come clean. I don't know who's going to win the AFC. <laughs> I, just, I don't. I mean, I got some thoughts on it. But let me marinate on those a little bit, man. Let those thoughts marinate a little bit uh, before we offer that. We'll get through the summer. And then before the season starts, we'll offer up some predictions. Okay. So AFC preview in the books. After the break, we're going to get to the call sheet. Segment, And we're going to look at some ways in which uh, modern NFL defenses are stressing. Welcome back to the call sheet here at Fans First Sports Network. Kevin Smith with you. First half of the show, we were talking AFC football, previewing the AFC. And in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about defense, something that AFC teams are going to have to figure out how to play at a really high level based upon the incredible talent of the quarterbacks in that conference. And so this is sort of a mirror conversation to last week's discussion in the call sheet segment of the show, where we looked at how the horizontal stretches that offenses are employing are creating problems for modern defense. Defenses, and now we're going to look at some ways in which defenses are returning the favor. What are some things that they do to make life tough on today's offenses? So let's start with a number, and that number is 2.7. 2.7. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pause for about a couple of seconds. I'm going to pause for 2.7 seconds, as a matter of fact, and let you let you ponder the significance of that number. 2.7. Ready? Go. There you go. That's it. That wasn't a very long pause. 
That was 2.7 seconds on my stopwatch on my phone. I actually stopwatched it on my phone. So what's the significance of, of that brief little pause? 2.7 seconds, some of you may have guessed this, is the average amount of time in the NFL, based on 2022 statistics, uh, that it takes a quarterback to catch the snap and throw the football. That's the, that's the snap to throw time uh, on average in the NFL. 2.7 seconds. And it's really fast. I mean, there's not a whole lot of time to do much in 2.7 seconds. Yet in that time frame, NFL quarterbacks are expected to identify coverage, recognize whether there's a blitz, recognize whether there's a coverage disguise, know how to diagnose it, know where to go with the football, deliver that, the deliver the throw to a receiver with a ball that's of course catchable, give them a catchable ball all the time. While some of the fastest, biggest, meanest athletes on the planet are converging around that quarterback, uh, meaning to, to menace him in a variety of ways. <laughs> that's a polite way to put it. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. It's a re it, I think it gives you an understanding when you, when you really think about 2.7 seconds, again, thousand one, thousand two, thousand, uh, not even three. When you think about how short that period of time is and how much a modern quarterback has to do in that short period of time, you really get an appreciation for why quarterback is probably the toughest position to play in all of professional sports. That's a debatable subject. I'm sure that hockey goalies and uh, you know, there may be a few other, other uh, position groups out there that might dispute it, but it's incredibly hard. And it's made increasingly difficult not simply because of, of all those things that a quarterback has to do, but because of the ways in which defenses are disguising their own intentions. And that brings me to sort of the focal point of, the, of this segment, right? If the horizontal stretch is the, is the sort of contemporary way in which offenses are finding an advantage against modern defenses, it's the disguise of intentions, whether they be blitz, coverage, front, whatever that modern defenses are employing that are making things hard on today's offense. It's just about every defense in the NFL right now is disguising what they do in some fashion. And so it's not enough as a quarterback simply to be able to, to come up to the line of scrimmage and look out and say, all right, it's cover two. And now like I'm going to check to a cover two beater and I'm going to throw the ball in the little window there in the flat when the corner bails to carry the vertical route outside. And that's my cover two beater because you don't really know if that's cover two because so there's so many post snap movements. So, all right, let's talk about some of these things. What are some of the things that defenses do to disguise their intentions before we even get to that? We'll go back to the 2.7 seconds in, in, a, in a, for a moment here, right? For those of you who have watched the NFL combine, my favorite drills to watch are the defensive line drills because you really get an appreciation for how fast these guys are when you watch them go through drills. This past combine over the winter, I remember marveling at Kalijah Kansi, the defensive tackle out of Pitt, who had an unbelievable get-off. His lateral movement – now, he's not the biggest defensive lineman in the world. He's about 6'2 and 285 pounds, and some people say he's undersized. Some people, of course, because of him being undersized and also from Pitt, compare him to Aaron Donald. Uh, I don't know where he's going to fall, but I do know this. His get-off is remarkable. 
His lateral quickness is incredible. And when you when you look at an athlete at his size with his quickness and speed and burst, as a defense coordinator, you immediately think, boy, there's a lot I can do with this guy. And so one of the things that defenses are doing is they're using a ton of post-snap defensive line movement to try to confuse blocking schemes and create pass to the quarterback. A guy like Kalijah Kansi, if you kick him outside as a five-tech, which means the defensive lineman who aligns on the outside shoulder of the defensive tackle, he's a great candidate to run what's now known as like the long stick stunt. A long stick stunt is where a five technique comes from all the way outside the tackle down into the A-gap. It takes, it takes a guy with incredible lateral movement and a guy who can get good leverage. He can dip and rip to try to win leverage inside the guard because he's coming from outside the tackle all the way down to the hip of the center. And he's not necessarily the guy who's causing the problem. What he's doing is he's trying to disrupt the blocking scheme, right? So that if you've got, let's say you're running a zone run play and everybody's supposed to zone block to the right and he rips all the way across the face of the tackle and the face of the guard, it's now making that really, you're inevitably you're ending up with the tackle and the guard on that one player. And now your, your one technique, your defensive tackle who aligns on the shoulder of the center is going to loop around or over top of that five tech who's, who's running the long stick stunt. And nine times out of 10, it seems he's going to be unblocked because the tackle and the guard have both had to come down on the collapsing five tech, destroying the integrity of blocking schemes by employing the incredible athleticism of today's defensive linemen is a big key to making life miserable for opposing offenses. When you, when you think back to the, the, the Tony Siragusas, or as a Steeler fan, I think back to like the Casey Hampton, the quintessential nose guards, 330 pounds. They're there to stuff two gaps because inevitably somebody's you're going to have to double team them because they don't get moved. Those guys are becoming dinosaurs. They're almost like the fullbacks of the defense now, the old school nose tackle. Because modern offenses are stretching the field and defenses are employing speed, which we'll talk about in a minute, to match that. And one way that they use that speed is with a variety of line stunts with their incredibly mobile defensive linemen. Another way they do it is with blitz packages, right? So we mentioned the Steelers. The Steelers were back in the 1990s known as Blitzburg because they employed blitzes from everywhere on the field. Dick LeBeau was the architect of the, the zone blitz, which back in the day when you blitzed, you, you inevitably were voiding an area of the field, which made it hard to play zone coverage. The blitz was coming from, let's just say, the hook curl zone, which is an, an, an area in the middle of the field usually covered by a linebacker. But if that linebacker is blitzing, the hook curls open and a good offense would diagnose that blitz, you know, hook up the tight end in that area. You throw to the tight end, you got an easy completion. But Dick LeBeau then diagnosed the zone blitz. And the zone blitz now was the blitz was still coming, but now you're playing zone coverage behind it. So a, a quarterback might think, hey, I've got this open hook curl zone because here comes the linebacker. But the backside backer might be dropping into that hook curl or the safety might be coming down from being too high, essentially a deep half safety into that hook curl. And now you got problems because you just threw into a zone that actually has a, a, a coverage defender in it. So 
the blitz packages have gotten really elaborate. You have zone blitzes, you have fire zones, you have safety blitzes. That's becoming increasingly popular. Safeties that roll down to the second level, assumingly to become flat defenders or hook curl defenders, but instead they come off the edge. Uh, I, I've seen now plenty of teams that are actually bringing their safeties down into the B gap. The B gap's the gap between the D, the offensive guard and an offensive tackle. Teams are looping their inside linemen out to the edge, trying to widen the edge and then sneak the safety into the B gap, which is just something that was never done before because it was just assumed, well, you're a safety. You're 205 pounds. You're 210 pounds. You don't belong in the B gap. That's a man's world down there, right? And, and that's not a world for safeties. But the speed at which these safeties now move and at which the defensive linemen move in order to disrupt the blocking schemes is making that possible. One of the more interesting blitz packages in the NFL today is the, the look that Brian Flores popularized when he was the D.C. in New England and then the head coach in Miami. He's, he's probably going to take that scheme to Minnesota with him. And that's the mug look. The mug look is a really interesting look. You've probably seen it where the defense puts seven and sometimes even eight defenders right at the line of scrimmage. You'll have, let's say you're playing a, a four, three, you'll have all four linemen plus all three linebackers walked up to the line of scrimmage and the defensive backs will be in what looks like some kind of press man configuration. And what the defense is doing is very rarely are they actually bringing all seven of those guys, but what they're doing is they're, they're, entering a guessing game they're entering into the offense into a guessing game where you have to figure out who's coming who's bailing into coverage how does how do i block it if i don't know who's coming how do i block it if i don't know who's bailing into coverage how do i know where to throw the football so flores has every combination you could possibly think of of guys coming and guys dropping off he's got linebackers coming he's got defensive linemen dropping dropping into coverage he's got overload blitzes where four guys from one side are coming and two out of the three guys on the other side are dropping off into coverage. And you just have to study the film. If you don't study the film and you don't get a beat on how he's attacking you, is he blitzing the back? Is he blitzing the formation? Is he blitzing the field? Is, you know, if you don't get a, be a beat on how he's, he's doing what he does, you're going to be in trouble. So blitz packages, incredibly elaborate today in the NFL. They use, they use down linemen, they use linebackers, they even use secondary players. Another way NFL coordinators disguise what they do is through coverage disguise. It is increasingly rare for a defense to simply line up in a static coverage and stay in that coverage at the snap. Like I said earlier, it's really rare for you as a quarterback now to like look out and see cover two and then the defense actually plays cover two. Increasingly, what defenses are doing is they're going to these post-snap rotations where if they line in a two-high shell, right, two safeties in the sky, looks like cover two, one of those safeties is dropping down into a, a robber, a cover two robber look, where he is looking to rob or steal the routes that are developing underneath. And now the other safety may be rotating back to the middle of the field and the corners are bailing. So it looks like cover two at the snap, but it really becomes like a cover three look after the snap. So if you've if you've called a cover two beater on that play, but the coverage morphs into coverage three, cover three after the snap, that cover two beater that you're running, that route you're running, that may be no bueno, right? Because the defense has dropped into a coverage that takes that route, that route away.
three to two. Go, going lining up in cover three and rotating to cover two is another really popular look, right? You see that middle safety now drop down and the two wide corners or one of those corners who's or one of the, the other safety who's aligned out wide rotating into a too high look. One of the more interesting new wrinkles in the league is you see defenses running with motion, which used, which always used to mean man-to-man. One of the reasons offenses use motion is because it's a little bit of a cheat cheat for them. If you're not sure what coverage the defense is in, let's say that they've got like a single high safety, but the corners are, are like in this sort of intermediate area where you, you can't tell if they're locked on in man or if they're just cheating back into a, into a cover three look. So one of the things you can do to diagnose that is to run motion across the field. And usually that will force the defense to declare itself, which means show if they're in man or zone. So the defense now runs with coverage. If they run with coverage throughout you know, the last 30, 40 years of football history, that meant that they were going to be in man. You're running with the guy because he's a man. If you didn't run with coverage, it meant you were, you were going to bump over because you were in zone. No need to run all the way across the field. I'm not in man. I'm playing an area. I'm not playing an individual. But what defense have started to do, these tricky defensive coordinators, what they've started to do is they've started to now run with motion and then check into zone. Now, that's just tough. If you're a quarterback, think about this. You Everything that you've seen has been like, hey, they run with man or they run with motion. It's man. It's man. But so so now you've got your man beater in mind, you're going to say, hey, we're going to motion on the backside. We're in a two-by-two two set, all right, if you guys can envision this. You're in a two, we're in a two-by-two two set, two receivers to each side. We're going to take the slot from the left. We're going to motion him across to the right. The man who's covering him, the nickel defender, the guy that's in the slot, he's running all the way across the, the formation too. So I should be able to run slant to that wide receiver on the left into the alley that the the defender who ran with motion has just voided. That should be an easy pitch and catch in there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run slant in there. But guess what? It's not man. It's zone. So now at the snap, the safety who was sitting too high is going to drop down into that alley where you're throwing slant. And he's going to either pick it or break it up, or maybe he's going to deplete your receiver. Well, he, he used to be able to deplete your receiver. Now, now you can barely breathe on the receiver, but he's going, he's going to gently – gently touch the receiver and and usher him to the ground in a polite fashion. Maybe we'll say it like that. But still, man, it's going to be it, it, it creates havoc for an offense and it really, really messes with the quarterback's brain. Boy, you got to be so good to diagnose that stuff. All right, one more tactic, right? We've got we got blitz packages, we've got line stunts, we've got coverage disguise. And now let's just talk about speed. What do you do with uh defenders who are sp- fast and versatile, and you can employ in a variety of roles. How, how do you wreak havoc on offenses with, with the use of those players? I'll give you two quick examples. The, the, the then San Diego Chargers, back in the 2019 playoffs, it was either 2018 or 2019. I, I'm, I'm not sure which. It may have been 2019. But they, they played the Lamar Jackson-led Baltimore Ravens. Really, at, when, when Lamar Jackson and Greg Roman's offense in Baltimore was humming, when it was really at peak performance and Lamar Jackson was wreaking havoc on opposing defenses with the quarterback read option game. He was running all over teams. And what the Chargers did in that playoff game was they put seven defensive backs on the field. Everybody's probably heard of a nickel defense. That's five defensive backs and a dime. That's six, right? So you get in third and 20, the dime will go out. 
But nobody ever plays dime on first and 10 because opposing offenses are just going to run the ball down your throat. San Diego played with seven defensive backs almost the entire game against Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. And they just gambled that their, that their defensive backs would be versatile enough to hold up against the run game if Baltimore decided that they wanted to try to pound it at the Chargers. The Ravens stubbornly, I, I never understand this, but they stubbornly threw the football 50 times in that contest. And they played right into, then again, it was then San Diego, now since LA, but they played into San Diego's hands. But the one of the biggest reasons the Chargers were able to do that was because Derwin James, the really versatile physical safety, was able to essentially play like middle linebacker, even though he's a safety. He was physical enough to be able to take on guards when the Ravens ran power and they tried to wrap a guard around and block him. Uh, and he, of course, he was then fast enough to be able to, to run down Jackson. The speed they put on the field and the versatility that James provided allowed them to run an unconventional defense for which the Ravens were just not prepared. And probably the quintessential example of using a defender like, like that in un, unorthodox fashion was what Dick LeBeau did with Troy Polamalu back in the day. I think Troy Polamalu created the template for some of the modern defenses that have gotten really creative with their, their safeties, especially their versatile safeties, because Troy Polamalu could line up anywhere on the field at any time and end up anywhere else at any time. It was almost impossible to predict where Troy Polamalu would end up based upon where he had aligned. He could align too high and wind up all the way down to the line of scrimmage uh, at the snap. He could line up at the line of scrimmage. I once, I'll never forget this. I saw a, a clip of the Steelers. Troy Polamalu was walked up in the A-gap, right? Walked up like he was going to blitz the A-gap. Literally walked up right in between the guard and the center. And on the snap of the ball, he sprinted back to play half the field cover two. That's almost impossible to do. I, you, you can't imagine, how could you get him there? How could you, how could you possibly get the safety from the A-gap on the line of scrimmage to the deep half of the field on a play when against an NFL offense that has so much speed? And the key, of course, was that they weren't running any cover two beaters that the offense was not anticipating cover two. So they weren't running a cover two beater designed to exploit the fact that the safety was trying to get to deep half coverage from the line of scrimmage. Dick LeBeau had a tremendous amount of success with those disguise schemes. Troy Polamalu's in the hall of fame. He's a unique player, but what, what the Steelers did with Polamalu has served as a template for some, what some modern defenses are now doing on a lesser scale with some of their super athletic, super talented safeties. So there you have it, man. It is a fascinating chess match and cat and mouse game. Offenses try to use shifts, motions, uh, horizontal stretches, all the, all the tools in their modern toolbook to create an advantage against defenses. Defenses counter by trying to confuse the heck out of uh, modern offenses with their disguises, their stunts, their slants, their, their blitzes, their coverage disguises, et cetera. Uh, I wouldn't want to be an NFL quarterback, man. I mean, it's physically, it's demanding enough. Mentally, though, the mental challenge of mastering the game uh, as an NFL quarterback is absolutely fascinating. All right, that's our conversation for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a little bit. Uh, hope you're anticipating training camps. They'll, they'll be here next week, and we'll start talking a little training camp football as we continue on with the call sheet. So, 
for Kevin Smith and everybody here at Fans First Network. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. 